And as flawed as an idea as the rule of law is, it's our only chance as a species. And when it breaks down, we get World War I, World War II, dictatorships, and the rest of it. The only thing that prevents us from that is that fine balance of the independence of the judiciary. Tribally and politically corrupt that, you're finished. And that's the road we're on, Sean. Welcome to Of Council. I'm your host, Sean Robichaud. Join us as our podcast profiles remarkable legal advocates from all areas of law, the professionals of persuasion, the catalysts of social change, defenders of the downtrodden, protectors of social order, and the mercenaries of corporate interests. Those who, with the power of words alone, can shape the laws of nations, define human rights, and preserve or take away the liberty of another human being. Who are these lawyers? What are their secrets? And how do they balance it all? Court is now in session. All rise. For our listeners who have patiently awaited the next episode of our podcast, you won't be disappointed. We are joined by one of Canada's most influential lawyers, Rocco Galati. Rocco has held the Canadian government to account time and time again for excess of power and neglect of duty, perhaps best known for his instrumental role in stopping Justice Mark Nadone's elevation to the Supreme Court of Canada under the Harper government. He has many other achievements which have shaped Canadian jurisprudence. To say that Rocco doesn't fear controversy would be a serious understatement. He epitomizes what it means to have courage as a lawyer, to stand for what he believes in no matter what the cost and ensuring justice prevails even though the heavens may fall. Warning, this episode contains explicit language that may be offensive to many of our listeners. While we may not share all of the beliefs and opinions of Mr. Galati, the strength of our podcast is derived from the right to free speech and the power it has given Mr. Galati to hold power accountable. Listener discretion is strongly advised. So I'm here with uh, Rocco Galati, one of Canada's foremost constitutional lawyers. So much to be said, and I want to just get into um, what started you into law. Uh, you were born in Calabria with 12 siblings. I've read that at one point your father was court-martialed twice for refusing to fight um, in the Mussolini uh, regime. There's one quote that uh, you said, he always told me that fascists don't come marching in overnight. It's a slow march. And then, of course, um, your father with family came to Toronto in 1965. So my question is, um, do you think that these early formative years growing up in Italy in the 50s, its recovery from fascist rule and recovery from war was uh, something that drove you into the pursuit of law? Not at all. I mean, I come from a village of a thousand people that to, to this day in 2018 has no, absolutely no police or government presence whatsoever. We're happy cohesive anarchist bunch and uh, <laughs> it had nothing to do with me going into law in fact my uh, going into law for me was a Hobson's choice uh, you know when I came out of McGill University in the Reagan 80s I couldn't find a job uh, so I decided okay I'll continue studying I applied for teachers college and journalism because of the raci- racism I couldn't get in even though I had uh, an AI minus average from McGill and spoke six languages fluently and so a friend of mine at McGill who was tearing his hair out in, in the final uh, semester of our BA. And I said, what's wrong, Tony? He says, oh, I'm writing the LSAT. I said, so you look like you're, you're dying. He says, oh, it's a hard exam. I said, well, how hard can it be? Come on. It's just an exam, right? And so he said, you know, you're so arrogant. You think you can pass? I said, well, I'm sure. You know, it's just an exam. And he says, okay, you, I'll tell you what. You you write the exam with me, but you also have to apply to law school. It's not enough to just to pass. I said, Tony, if it'll help you, we're good friends. They'll do it. Fine. <laughs> I, I love how you got into law school on essentially what was a dare among friends. It was <laughs> just a favor I was doing. And so I wrote the LSAT. I, felt, I, I failed the LSAT because I couldn't care. I wasn't going to law school. And so I applied. And I got in anyway, but I couldn't get into teacher's college or, or, or journalism. So I said, well, what to do now? I couldn't find a job. I said, okay, 
uh, came back home, went to Osgood, and you know. Yeah, you know, it's it, I wanted to touch upon that because, you know, in 2018, when we hear about racism, usually, you know, people with Italian lineage are not sort of grouped into that. But it wasn't too long ago when we were describing um, a lot of struggles. So what was it like to grow up in Toronto during the 60s and 70s? Well, before I answer that, and never mind not too long ago, what people don't understand is that there are a lot of invisible groups who are still the subject of vicious racism, the Italians included. We don't get appointed much. We are the fourth largest group in Canada. We are 17% of the Ontario Bar. We're less than 1% of the judiciary. Wow. We got our first Italian Roman Catholic superintendent of schools in this century, not the last one. And well over a third of the Catholic schools were Italian. So there's still this vicious racism against Italians. I still see it amongst judges, amongst colleagues. That, you know, that organized crime stigma is still there. Oh, for, for Growing sure. up in Toronto, if you, look at the, if you look at the left side of my forehead, you'll see a six-inch scar going at about a 45-degree angle that's faded somewhat. Yeah, that I was a, a police billy club. We got the shit beaten out of us by cops on a regular basis for just being wops on College Street. There wasn't hardly a week or, you know, that didn't go by in school where we had fistfights with racist Anglo-Irish Scots. That was Toronto in the 60s. When I was growing up in the late 60s and 70s in Toronto, there were 2,000 Afro-Canadians and about 2,500 Chinese. People forget those days. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, our society, thankfully, is a lot different today on, on the outside. I think you scratch a couple of layers, it's not that much different. We still face racism. It was a famous meeting between Ian Scott when he was Attorney General of Ontario and some Italian lawyers in the city who complained that there just weren't any Italo-Canadian judges, you know, except a couple of one one or two here, here Mm. and there. And Ian Scott says, well, we want to appoint more of them, but every time we do, our police chiefs in uh, the Attorney General's office has a, a concern about links to the mob. Now, think about that. There was 1.7 million Italians in the GTA. Well, we all connected to the mob? I mean, so it's still there. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's something that is clearly with you today? And do you think it gives you power to become the forceful litigator you are now? Did it drive you through law school and even maybe into the DOJ to try and get into the system? And I, mean, I was never conscious of that. I mean, my sense of, my sense of you know, hating injustice or doing the right thing all came from my father. So I never sort of tabulated it into my practice of law. But, you know, we're all products of our culture and our upbringing. So whether we clean toilets, right, or practice law, how we were raised and where we come from is going to come to bear on the task. Mm. And so most people assume that I love the law, right? They don't, most people don't know that I just walked into it because I had no other choice. And they say, yeah, but you're so good at it. And that's, but that's the way we're raised in my culture. As I say to people, if I clean toilets, they'd be the cleanest in the world. That's just the way we are. But you shouldn't read anything more into it than that. I know there's a lot of lawyers who put a lot of stock in the fact that they're lawyers. I'm not one of them. My father taught me that your dignity doesn't depend on what you do for a living or how much money you have or whatever you own. It's your dignity in accordance with your principles. So talking about that and your principles, you use the term injustice. What does that mean to you, injustice? I mean, for me, generically, an injustice is very simple. It is the deprivation or denial by a powerful individual or group of a right or equal treatment of a less powerful individual or group without justification mm-hmm. or based on a repugnant basis like racism. That's, injust- that's an injustice. So let me ask you this. Why? Because we know you articled with the Department of Justice. Was there a reason you got into the Department of Justice to try and get on the inside and see its inner workings? Or, no. No? <laughs> Just serendipity again? <laughs> Worse than serendipity. I, I article at the time where they did the matching system that only lasted a few years. It was the only offer I got. But on the Department of Justice list, before I got the offer, 39 other students had to say, no, thank you. They ranked me number 40. Wow. And when I came on to the Department of Justice at the time, me and Joe DeFilippis, now Justice DeFilippis, were the only Italian lawyers in the whole damn place in Toronto in 1990. Now, factor that. 1990, you only have two Italian lawyers in the Department of Justice in the Toronto Regional Office. 
Unbelievable. And that's why I've often been quoted as saying that a large part of my system, our system is still apartheid-like. And people are outraged when I say that. I said, well, I'll debate it with anybody any day. Now things are improving. You know, I was really, really the first call to the bar that I attended as a bencher. You know, compared to my call at the bar mm -hmm. in uh, 1989, I was just I was just so happy to see so many non-white faces come and get their license. You know, I was just delighted. You know, and in a small way, I think to myself, you know, me and others like me probably made this happen. Did you feel that um, because you you were at DOJ from 1987 to 1990? Did you feel that you didn't fit in there and you wanted to go and do your own thing, or was there something else that drove you to leaving? The only thing that drove me to leave was a real, uh, uh, it was a financial consideration. I came out of school with $147,000 in debt uh, at 22% interest. Okay, so do the numbers. You know, so I was paying uh, over 30000 in interest. My gross salary as a first-year lawyer at Justice in 1989 was $29,000. Right. I was grossing less than what I owed in interest. So I liked the work, and intellectually I liked the work. But I said, well, this is, this is no, a non-equation. I can't continue on, so I had to leave. What did you have envisioned when you decided to open up your own practice? Did you, did you want to continue doing that type of work, or was there something else you had in mind? My vision was a five-year plan. I was going to get rid of my debts, make enough money, hopefully, to buy a house, and then I was going to turn to my passion. I'm, I'm by nature a poet and a writer. I was going to write for the rest of my life. Never happened. Uh, well, in a I, sense. <laughs> in a sense. Uh, I, I did buy a house. I managed to pay it off before my five-year plan. But then uh, my then spouse, uh, we got divorced, and so things changed. And, you know, a uh, theme of my life, uh, Sean, is I don't choose anything. I don't think anybody ever does. Right. You know, you deal with the circumstances you're dealt with. People have this fiction or fantasy or delusion that they actually control their life. Yeah. I, I think I think that's a bit delusional. So I went back into practice, yeah. and the, you know, and the, the rest is history, as they say. What advice would you give to younger lawyers? You know, because you've been you you had a real struggle getting to the point you are now. I mean, like you say, you sort of went with whatever was given to you in life. Um, I imagine a lot of it was a struggle. What about lawyers in similar situations who are facing, for example, issues of racism or issues of debt? Is there any advice that you would try and give them now that might help them through that? Yeah, that's a problem because it's a, it, it literally enslaves you, right? So yeah. that's a problem. Uh, you got to get rid of your debt. Uh, what, the only advice I give to uh, my articling students and juniors that I've had over the years is do not come into this profession to make money or to think you're going to change the world. Do it because you enjoy the work you're doing. And no matter what area of law you like, pursue that even if you think it's not as lucrative as the other one, because there is no changing in five or ten years. A lot of lawyers make the mistake of, like a lot of other people in life, saying, okay, I really don't want to do this, but I need to make some money, and then I'll do something else that's closer to my heart and to my, to my liking. That never happens. I mean, I experienced it. I had my plan, and then I was going to write. I should have just abandon the law, which I did for a year when I got divorced, but I came back into it for financial considerations, right? That's not to say I'm not impassioned about what I do, and, and, and I'm not good at practicing law, but it's not what I ideally wanted to do in life. And so if what you want to do is be a lawyer, great, but hone in on the type of law you want to do, and forget all the other considerations, because eventually you will make money. If you're impassioned about what you do, you will make money. You know, it's, I have to say, it's very um, odd, that advice coming from you saying, you know, you're not going to change the world and things like that. Because, you know, from the outside, you, you've, you've dealt with cases, at least in Canadian jurisprudence, that have changed things quite significantly. Uh, you know, we look at some of the cases you've done. Uh, you're the first lawyer on uh, Qadar. Um, you dealt with a Nadone reference. I mean, these are big cases. and I just uh, want to clarify, Kadar. I didn't represent Omar Kader. I represented his middle brother. Mm -hmm. I actually had him extracted out of CIA hands. Uh, he was in Guantanamo Bay, which led to the death threats and my being poisoned. But this is what I'm saying. Like you, you say, you know, you're not going to change the world. And these, these kind of cases, at least from a really geeky law perspective, kind of do change the world a little bit. And I know maybe it's not... You know, I'll take that. But my, my point was... I didn't go out planning to change the world. Right. I just, like I am today, I am who I am. I don't look left or right. And I do what I do. 
If it changes things, great. But if you plan to change the world, you're going to fail. That's really interesting. You're going to fail. So can you talk much about uh, what happened with Qadar? Do you feel comfortable talking about oh, that? Oh, sure, sure. Yeah. So what was that experience like? Well, that experience was uh, was like the, a lot of uh, the other experience I had with my national security case is ugly. Uh, it made me realize, which I had a sense, there's a difference between intellectually knowing something, Sean, and facing it in reality up against a wall. We have a delusion as Canadians. We lie to ourselves so much. We're so arrogant. You know, we're the best country in the world. We're so diverse. Bullshit. We don't become that just because we say it. The rule of law in Canada ends in the same spot that it does in everywhere else in the world when it meets the jungle. And I met the jungle with the death threats from the CIA, from CSIS, uh, my almost dying of uh, being poisoned deliberately. I know that. And, and moreover, with the Criminal Lawyers Association mm -hmm. and the Law Society of Upper Canada mm -hmm. turning the other way, pretending it didn't happen, only because I was a WAP. Because if I was a, a stellar, pristine, and respected WASP lawyer, people would be outraged. Because I'm a WAP, the reaction was, good, the WAP's getting what he deserves. Who does he think he is? Now think about that. We have a committee at the Law Society that issues these statements, the Human Rights Monitoring Group, about lawyers who face difficulties because of what they do. Well, who came to my assistance when I was threatened in my own country? Mm. No one. The legal system turned the other way. So, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with the term in the States about the 500-mile liberal. A liberal is outraged about what happens in the world unless it happens within 500 miles of where they live. And then they ignore it. That's Canada. Do you see any solution to that? Oh, just perseverance and, you know, just keep doing what you're doing. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, you know, looking from what I've seen, a lot of these quote-unquote bold statements of protectionism of lawyers and the rule of law, it's always made after the fact. It's never at a point where it's controversial. That's and, right. You know, and uh, I certainly haven't experienced it to the degree that you have, but I remember this quite clearly when the judge was wearing the Trump hat and I was one of the first lawyers to say something. Right. It wasn't until, you know, months later the transcripts were ordered and all these things. We all knew it happened, right. but right. it's not until you're in a position of complete safety. So is there then an obligation? I mean, how does, uh, especially a younger lawyer, right? It's it's one thing for you, Rocco Galati, to do these things because you have the um, presence to be able to say these things. But what about a young lawyer who faces the jungle, you know, who looks at something like what is racial profiling on a case that's very clear to them and must have the fortitude to say to a judge, this is racial profiling. Where do they find that? In their inner strength and introspection of what, they're doing as a lawyer and why they're doing as a lawyer. I take all these comments, I hear them a lot. Well, you know, you're senior counsel, you're this and this. I was doing this in year one, mm -hmm. okay? The only thing you have to be is extremely knowledgeable, competent. And if you are, and you're within a principled parameter of the law, the Constitution, you can say anything you want to a judge and should say it the first day you step into court. Okay, because they're not anointed, they're appointed. Mm -hmm. Corruptly so, but they're still appointed. They don't have, they don't, they're not cloaked with papal fallacy, okay, fallacy. So a lawyer should understand that the, no matter how young they are, that if their position is principled, it's well articulated, and in the law they can say and should say what they need to say to any judge, including the chief justice of the country. Mm -hmm. You know, I, th I, I hear you and I agree with you, but what about, you know, like if you look at what happened, for example, to Joe Groya, right? right? Someone who is in a position that, from my perspective, said what it needed to be said. And ultimately, sure, ultimately the Supreme Court kind of agreed with that in, in a way that I don't think was entirely in agreement. But how does one think, well, what if I say this and I end up in a $100,000 problem trying to defend myself, law society coming after them? At, at some point, are you not choosing between your own career and what needs to be done? And You do that every... That, that, that's true, you do. Yeah. And what happened to Joe, and I said it all along, even before the Supreme Court, was another piece of tribal travesty. Now, just think about it. The prosecutor on that case, I read it was put in the transcript, uh, said that Joe was something to the effect of lying, right? Well, he, he became a superior court judge. 
And the judge doing the trial said to the prosecutor, well, you know, you accuse Mr. Goyer of being uncivil, but, you know, you calling him a liar is, you know, pretty uncivil. Different standards. Why? Because Groya's name is Groya. You know, we got to deal with this tribal shit in our society. We really do. Because until we do, we can delude ourselves all we want. Sean, the system is breaking down. Look south of the border, and you'll see Canada in 20 or 30 years. I'd bet my bottom dollar on it. We're so smug. Oh, we don't have the same problem of mass murders. Really? Well, we're starting to get them, aren't we? We're not smarter than the Americans. We're not, you know, we're not better than the Americans. We're just smugger and more arrogant about our cultural inadequacies and our failings. The reason we think the Americans are worse is because they deal with their problems. Racism is up front every day. They deal with their problems. You know why we're not a racist society? Because we don't deal with the racism. So we just pretend it doesn't exist. Just think about this for a second. April 15th. 1985, Section 15 of the Charter comes in. Do you know that the Supreme Court of Canada has not dealt with a substantive case of racism since the Charter? Forget the procedural cases about jury selection. I'm talking about they have never granted leave, and many have been brought on a case that said, hey, I didn't get this government job because I'm black or Chinese. Never. What's that tell you about our court system? We deny the existence of racism, even though, in the context of jury selection, Williams, Parks, and all that, we say that racism is endemic to the criminal justice system. Well, isn't it also endemic to society at large? But we don't deal with it. So if we don't deal with it, we don't have the problem. We do hear about it a lot, though. I mean, we hear about it in the sense that there's a lot of measures that are being taken place, particularly with law society on diversity measures. Is there a disconnect there, or are these positive steps forward? How do you see it, or can you talk about that? I'm on record on the diversity statement. And if you pull the transcripts of that convocation, I ended my speech with, quote, chocolate-covered shit is still shit. Let's deal with the shit. This is just all talk, no action. It's all talk, no action. John Sapinka once said that the greatest threat to our civil liberties in Canada, and when I go speak, I often keep uh, his speech in my back pocket, the greatest threat to civil liberties in Canada, according to John Sapinka, and I agree, is political correctness. The reason political correctness is a threat is that if the state imposes censorship and cultural censorship, we can fight that. Political correctness is self-imposed culturally and sociologically. So when we censor ourselves, we're in trouble. Yeah, that's all PC horse manure. It's a lot of talk, no action. I'll give you an example. I would force big firms to hire on a racially based quota system commensurate with the population at large. Give us your qualifications that you're seeking. Mm -hmm. And if you can't find lawyers of diversity to fill them, we'll find them for you. We can do what we did to Trinity Western, but we can't force lawyers to hire on a diverse basis. Of course we can, and we should. That's action. Same with the judicial appointments. Do you see the initiatives of the Law Society moving towards that direction? Are we ever going to get to that point where there is actual action, or is it, think you, just going to be more talk? It's more talk, and then, you know, you have, you, you have a, a two-tiered system like everything, the LLP system. My view is that we either, one, limit the number of students who can write the bar ads, if, if people aren't getting enough articles. Or two, for all those students who don't get articles, we find them a place, paid, and we impose that on the profession. Or three, just eliminate articling. Mm -hmm. Let the students who can't get a job because they don't, you can't find favor out there because of their skin color or their circumstances, get their license and let the market prevail. That's what they do in the States. They've mm -hmm. been through this before. I have a question about media. Because one of the big things that younger lawyers uh, are very intimidated by is how to address the media. And I, this kind of ties in a little bit to social media as well. Lawyers are very, very cautious in what they say. And I love, I, in doing my research, I love the quote by you where you said something effective. 98% of lawyers think they're going to wind up on the Supreme Court of Canada one day. And they so they're very guarded in what they say. Uh, um, you're missing the second half of that quote. <laughs> what was that? I said, uh, out of 300,000, I picked a number out of my hat. I said, 299,995 think that they're going to be Supreme Court judges because all those lawyers are delusional about being titans in their own mind. Right. Yeah. Okay, so yeah. they, they're worried about reputation. Okay. 
So how, yeah, so that that's something that's always I think front and center on lawyer, younger lawyers, both in social media, but also how to deal with media. You have a lot of experience in this. So how do you strike that balance if there is a balance in, in properly approaching media by advancing whatever you're trying to advance, but also not you know, ruining their career, even if that's a result of overly protective uh, law society action or anything like that? Is there a balance to be struck? I've had I have dozens of complaints, complaints against me uh, in my career. None of them ever went to discipline. Mm-hmm. A good half dozen were by the law society themselves from media reports. The media for me, look, there's only three aspects to my, quote, reputation. I don't get engrossed of an idea that I have a reputation. Lawyers should not be that egotistical. I have one job. I have the job of protecting my client's interest within the bounds of the law, right? Not doing anything illegal and within the bounds of the ethical rules of professional conduct. Past that, there's only three things I care about my reputation, that I'm prepared, competent, and knowledgeable. After that, I couldn't care what the Pope or the Chief Justice of this country thinks about me. I couldn't give a shit one Mm -hmm. way or the other, nor should I. So when I talk to the media, I speak to them when necessary with respect to my client's interests and rights, and I gear my comments. I I have practical advice. I keep my comments short and snappy so they cannot be misquoted, and I keep them geared at my client's interest and the public's interest, because the public has an interest too. Mm Because my client could be any one of you out there tomorrow. Right. Okay, and that's how I deal with the media. When you're dealing with, you know, getting moving on points of preparation and competence, I want to talk to you a little bit about advocacy. What do you see some of the essentials of advocacy? You know, if there was an inscription on your desk to read as you're making an argument, um, is there a key technique or is there something that's carried with you through your career? Yeah, that's a complicated question. I'll tell you a little story if we can digress for a second. I used to practice at 372 Bay with uh, Bill Naylor, uh, a sole practitioner, uh, when I started my private practice for six years. In those days, Eddie Greenspan uh, was at 390 just across the street on Bay. And when I was... I get down to the office between 5.30 and 5.45 every morning, and there was nothing open, and there was no Tim Hortons, no Starbucks there. The only thing that was that was open back then was a cafe, internal cafeteria on the ground floor of the Sheraton Center, so i get get my coffee there. And often, often I'd see Eddie there. I didn't know him personally. I'd only met him once briefly when my, my colleague uh, Edward Armstrong was appointed to the provincial bench. Didn't even chat with him at that reception, just physically saw him. So at one point, he was work, obviously working on a big case, you know, I, I'd nod at him in the morning. We were the only two there. And one morning he came up to me and said, you're a lawyer. I said, yeah. I said, well, you're going to do well. I said, why do you say that? He said, well, do you see any other lawyers here at 6 o'clock in the morning? <laughs> he says, he said to me, cases are won 90% in the office and 10% in the courtroom. Okay, so preparation is key, key, key. Now, past that, there's an unfortunate other side to advocacy that's not preparation. And that is... And if you want to play basketball, you either have the goods or you don't. Mm-hmm. Not everybody can play basketball. So with advocacy, there's a couple of skills that are not skills. They're personality traits that you have nothing to do with that were imparted on you by your parents or your upbringing. Are you quick on your feet? You can't learn that. You cannot learn or be trained to be quick on your feet. Do you have a 3D vision of the world and what's happening around you? You can't be trained to have that. And so you will find that the brilliant advocates are quick on their feet, have a 3D vision, and more, And the last thing that I've, I put my finger on, they're constantly thinking like a chess player, seven, eight steps ahead. They're aware of the transcript as they're cross-examining witnesses and what they will do on appeal if the judge goes this way or that way. Those three things, while you can be aware of their importance, you can't train for. I'm sorry. So the 90% of the preparation, I totally agree with Eddie Greenspan. And, but the other 10% is attributes. And the second thing I would say about the advocacy skills is that it all depends on the kind of law you do. You know, not all law is the same. So if you're out there orbiting Pluto like I do with constitutional cases that push the envelope, you have to have a creative side to you. You have to. Your personality has to naturally think outside the box. My father and I were both proud anarchists, not purveyors of chaos, but I'm, I'm talking about as a political philosophy, 
mm-hmm. you know, Gr- Gramsci and all of that, uh, you know, mm-hmm. as a political philosopher. So I naturally think outside the box. Why? I was made an outsider by the society from the day I could walk and talk, from the day I got here. You know, I was labeled clinically mentally retarded in grade eight by the school system. So I was ignored, which was good, because I was forced to figure out the world on my own. And so if you don't have those attributes of quick on your feet, 3D view, and thinking ahead seven or eight moves, you'll never be a brilliant advocate. Let me ask you this. There are people who maybe they are brilliant and maybe they want to get into things a lot sooner than they should. You know, they think of themselves as titans and maybe they'll one day become that. But one of the big issues, and we were talking about this earlier today, is getting ahead of your competence level, right? And people thinking that, you know what, I'm a second-year lawyer, I've done a few cases, I want to do a murder. Because not everyone can just jump in and bring in a own reference, right? Nor should they. So do you have advice in the sense of pacing yourself, or, or do we need some sort of greater protectionism for the public and ensuring that lawyers who are like that don't come in, who are you know, perhaps arrogant and think that they can do things they can't? Well, I'll take that in pieces. Uh, Number one, this is my 30th year at the bar, and I've done a lot of different cases, competently complex cases. I've never done a murder case. And if I got one through the door tomorrow, I'd be calling you or uh, or the likes of John Rosen and begging them to take the case, and I could junior and learn. This is a big problem. You can't get ahead of yourself. And that's why mentorship is important. And I think the profession, you know, they do it with the legal aid panels, like the complex cases and that. I think as a law society, we fail both the profession and the public in not having a compulsory graduated competence of cases. The judiciary fails us. You know, not too many judges, and some do, but rarely. They know the bar. They know the counsel in front of them. They shouldn't allow any old lawyer to do a murder case if they've never done one. Pure and simple. But we don't have that culture. Again, we have this pretense culture in Canada that people who exercise a post are competent. Why? We devolved as a monarchy. Merit is not in our DNA in Canada. Judicial appointments are made on tribal, racial, and political favor. That's it. If Canadians think they have the best jurist on the bench... You're delusional, okay? So that culture transcends down, all the way down. And so we assume, oh, you're a lawyer, you're licensed, you're competent to do anything. Any judge on the, on the Superior Court can do any case. B.S. That's where we fail our system. Everybody's failed for that. Most of all, the clients, because they don't know any better. And so we all have a responsibility to change that. If you're a junior lawyer that gets a case that's beyond them, invite a senior lawyer to co-counsel with you, mentor you, and teach you. Yeah, as I see it, you know, especially in criminal law, what uh, seems to be happening, particularly with cuts in the legal aid, and we can segue into this because I think this is an important topic. But what I see is, you know, many people come before the courts unrepresented. The courts will force Robotham applications. And a lot of the time, the court sometimes will seem content with what I call an intolerable level or a tolerable level of injustice, rather. You know, so we have the person in the position, but that person in the position is just someone who's somehow acquiesced to this, even though they probably weren't selected or maybe have the merit to do it. Do you see the access to justice problem a funding issue? Do you see it as something? Uh, competence issue, training? Where do you see some of the solutions for these sorts of issues? It's a tough issue. I've lambasted judges at conferences who come and invite us to do more pro bono work, especially in the family law area where they have the jurisdiction to order paid counsel. Look, access to justice is another one of those PC BS terms I hate. Nobody in our system is truly committed to access to justice, okay? We hear a lot of talk about it from the ex-chief justice, a lot of judges. Look, it's simple. If a person's jeopardy is in play and can't afford a lawyer, in my view, lawyer paid counsel should be appointed, either through legal aid or the court. Full stop, okay? The row-bottom order applications, what a joke. So you spend more time on the row-bottom application, even when you're successful, you rarely get costs on them, right? And they're denying a certificate most of the time. And then legal aid hires private counsel at $400 an hour to fight the row-bottom. They spend more money fighting the row-bottom than they would have spent if they just issued the certificate. Mm -hmm. And the judges sit around and they do nothing about it. It's deplorable. And I blame the judges. Personally, as 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 a counsel, 
If you need a lawyer, deserve a lawyer, and can't afford it, and one isn't there, then you need to turf the charges. You need to stay the charges in the criminal context. So let's move to something a bit outside of the law for a bit. Uh, I'm, um, I'm curious, you know, how do you, you know, you've been practicing for a long time, and that in and of itself is a feat. A lot of lawyers, especially with the intensity level that you're practicing at, can't do it anymore, or they leave the law, um, they have health problems. Is there something that you do to try and alleviate the stress of the day-to-day in litigation? Out of our class of 60 at Osgood, I think me and Joni Rosenthal, a fellow bencher, are the only sole <laughs> practitioner standing, right? Is that right? Yeah, yeah. two out of 60. So. I want to back paddle to a comment I made earlier. I have a lot of, I love Canada. I grew up here. This is my life, my family, you know, mm-hmm. I was born, and my kids were born here. But I got to say, I'm, I'm always critical of, uh, you know, not in a negative way, but in a constructive way. Our culture has really got a psychosis. My culture doesn't put different parts of your life in different compartments. You know, this issue of quality time, you know. If I'm having a two-hour lunch with my wife and a nice bottle of wine during a workday between court or after court, it's no less pleasurable than if we had it on Wasaga Beach. Right. <laughs> I, don't, I don't divvy up my life that way. It's just not our culture. So the stresses of the job, it's the job. Everybody has stress. My caregiver to my children has stress. We all, all people have stress. So I don't think about the stress. The only time it bothers me is, for instance, when I was getting the death threats, threats geared at my daughter mm. that I never made public before. They were threatening to harm my daughter. We're talking about government institutions here, okay? So that's when I get pissed off. But apart from that, it's a job. The job's a job, you know? So I don't need to uh, de-stress, decompress. It's a hard job. And what I said earlier is that my culture says, you know, you do the best job you can. If you don't like the job, leave it. And there may be a day that I'm just going to walk away from it because I don't like it anymore. Right. Or they can't stomach it. So those things never factor into my assessment. I often get up at 3 in the morning to start my prep for a case or do an all-nighter, typically, on a major appeal or judicial review. Not on a trial, unless it's a critical part of the trial, but that's the way I operate, and I need the quiet, right? But that's just par for the course. That's, that's the job. It's a job. In the, uh, the last government, there was a lot to be challenged, and you did, you know, with the Nadal reference, uh, the treatment of, of terrorism, all sorts of things like that. Are you more optimistic about the present government and where they're going? <laughs> <laughs> Is there less challenges coming from Rocco Galati? Or? Well, well, there's a few less challenges for good reason. Yeah. You know, like people think it's partisan. I sued Kretchen. I sued, uh, I've sued many prime ministers and cabinet ministers. For me, it's not about the Liberal Party. They're all the same. The reason there's, I, I've been less active with uh, Justin Trudeau's government, he's not doing anything. <laughs> Again, a lot of talk, no action. Harper actually moved on legislation. Right. The, the man was a maniac and uh, uh, not a, a real believer in the rule of law and constitutionalism, but he acted. That's why I reacted as a lawyer. Trudeau, what has Trudeau done? Really, let's look at his legislative agenda. He hasn't done anything. The only thing he did was reverse the citizenship law, which we were challenging in the court while, while he was campaigning. And when the case came to his attention, he said, well, if I get elected, I'm going to reverse that. I can't think of what he's done. He talks about doing a lot of things. Right. There's talk on the horizon, you know, removing peremptory challenges, elimination of preliminary hearings, yeah. things like well, that. Well, on the prelim thing, I, I researched and was going to bring that issue in the Brampton 18 cases, but my client got a peace bond, so I didn't. Preliminary inquiries, to eliminate a preliminary inquiry is unconstitutional. The preliminary inquiry is, is specifically articulated in the Magna Carta of 1215, and it has a whole history. In 1905, they sent a reference to the Supreme Court of Canada on whether or not they can uh, directly indict on all offenses, and the Supreme Court says, yeah, if a Superior Court judge drafts the indictment. And the reason for that is that direct indictments are uh, nothing more than writs of attainder, Writs of attainder are selective prosecution by the executive were abolished by the Bill of Rights of 1688. That's why we have the prelims continued after the English Civil War of 1688 because they were embedded in the Magna Carta. Because you can't put a person in jeopardy without offering proof. And that's where the prelim comes from. Right. So if that passes... I'll challenge that, yeah, for sure. Can I help? Oh, sure. (laughs) 
maybe I maybe I can junior for you because you're yeah, much right. more you're much more seasoned as a criminal lawyer than I am. Well, I have no idea how to challenge, but yeah. I'm happy to show you the sure. benefits and everything like that because it is it is troubling from a criminal lawyer's point of view. Is exactly what you say. You know, the, the state being able to just uh, put someone before a jury without any type of understanding, and and from a practical level, they. They serve immense benefits. And just the other day, we were able to resolve a homicide into something that um, saved the court probably months of time. Right. No, no. It's just, it's just, a, it's, and I, I researched the issue uh, and had a, a, an argument prepared for the, those cases. I didn't have to bring it because my, when they put, when they directly indicted, my client was given a peace bond and yeah. he walked away. So, Despite, you know, you being an outlier, you ended up running for venture and are a bencher now. What are you getting from that? Well, I'm getting confirmation of everything I thought was wrong with the Law Society. And, uh, you know, my, my reasons for running for bencher were, one, to be a voice for the sole practitioner and marginalized lawyer, whether it be racial or otherwise. I think most lawyers are confused about their role. They think they're there to care about the health of uh, practitioners and lawyers. They're not. They're there to, quote, protect the public interest, which is a pretty pretzeled notion on their part. For me, a healthy profession is the best thing you can do to protect the public interest. But they, again, they see this this uh, dichotomy between the two. For me, the Law Society continues to be a politically correct field of quicksand. Mm-hmm. A lot of talk, no action, and it's unwielding. The entire structure has become too burdensome, you know. And uh, so, but I'll, I'll, I'll rerun again because I think there's a need for my kind of voice in a place like that, if for nothing more than to make sure that they don't pretend that all's well in the kingdom, you know? Yeah, this is my, my next question is whether you intend to run again. Now, let me ask you this, though. The, law, the practice of law is shifting a lot and yeah. drastically. Right. And it seems to me that a lot of lawyers are starting to go out on their own and becoming more along the sole practitioner you know, we always deferred to Bay Street to almost send the benchers uh, in the past. And it seems to me with your appointment with Joe Groya, there is something going on there. And do you think that trend is going to continue? Do you think there's going to be more room for that? Well, I think that trend is going to continue and worsen because the profession justifiably is pissed. Mm-hmm. And that's the only reason Joe and I got elected. You know, I didn't do a single shred of uh, campaigning. I just put my name in and I, I ended up 12th in terms of vote getting, Joe Groya got elected. To me, that was a straight message to the Law Society. You're crucifying him unjustifiably. Right. Right. I mean, that's a clear message. So I think that trend will continue. I think you'll see more sole practitioners and small firm lawyers getting elected as benchers. We have a, uh, there's, you know, uh, you know, review of these structures up in the next year when we reconvene. And uh, what I'd like to see is an elimination of all non-elected benchers, including all ex-treasurers and lifetime benchers. Lifetime benchers can, uh, they were grandparented in, they can discuss and have a right to speak, but they can't vote. Ex-treasurers can vote, which is problematic for me because a treasurer only sits two years. So you can have so many ex-treasurers. It's wrong. I think the only, the only benchers that should be allowed to be at convocation and vote are elected benchers. And I think the number should be closer to 25 than 40, and that convocations sh- sit more as a committee of the whole than fractured committees. You can have committees, but they don't have to be benchers. You can have working groups, even of non-benchers, which makes even more sense to report to convocation. But the entire structure is just unwielding. So on that, you know, if you were talking about sole practitioners and trying to help them and advance them, you've uh, stressed in other interviews the importance of running a healthy practice. You know, you said at one point, if I go broke, I'm, I'm good to nobody. A lot of good lawyers do a lot of good work, lose sight of the business side, and they go under. Right. Uh, you know, I see that a lot, especially with young criminal lawyers, because these are crises that people need to deal with. People are in jail. Uh, families are crying. Um, there's all sorts of reasons why you want to jump into the deep end without having the proper life preserver. What advice would you give to lawyers who are in that position? It's a business. You know, we tend, as a profession, I, I keep saying it's a job. It's a business. All right? You're either employed or you're self-employed. Sole practitioners are self-employed. Every article student and junior that comes to me who wants to be a sole practitioner, the first thing I do is I say, what are your expectations of how much money you want to make, right? And I'm a tax lawyer by, by primary expertise, tax litigator, right? And so numbers don't bother me. So I break it down for them. 
here's six days a week, 10 hours a day. Here's what your expenses are going to be. You have to make X dollars an hour. And if you want to come home with X dollars after your taxes, this is what you have to do. Most of the reactions I get virtually all the time, you say, oh, don't you think it's a bit anal? I said, no, it's not anal. If you don't do this, you're going to find yourself in debt and delusional about it's a business. It's a business. Me personally, I had a side business with my brother who is also a lawyer. He's older than me, but uh, he never practiced. He liked to joke that Rocco practices. I preach. He was a real estate broker. We used to take old homes, reno them, and flip them. And a lot of people think, uh, well, where do you get the time for all this pro bono work? Partly it's that. I, I was conscious that, you know, I'll go under with all this pro bono work. I want to do some of this pro bono work, so I need, I need a different pension plan. And I got my pension plan was through real estate. So a lot of people out there who have who have those abilities, you know. I remember, I remember somebody who I was mentoring, who had a successful business. I said, "Well, why are you getting rid of it?" He said, "Well, I'm a lawyer now." I said, "So what?" <laughs> and my friends used to tell me, "What are you doing renovating houses? Isn't that beneath you as a lawyer?" Again, I go back to this thing, Sean, about how you can't wrap yourself around your profession as the be all and end all of who you are as a person. But many lawyers do. I, I mean, know, that's it's a the problem. first thing they'll say when you're introduced, problem. I'm a lawyer. and Yeah, that's a problem. And, and one of the things I say I, when, I'm, when I'm mentoring and training people is it's a job. Don't romanticize it. Don't delusionize it. Right? And it's a business. And, you know, so what if it's not so? You know, we have too many TV series from Perry Mason right to, I don't know what the latest one is because <laughs> I don't watch TV. Suits. Yeah. yeah. Uh, in my dictatorship, I would ban them. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so you know, wrapping up, I have two two more questions for you, Rocco, um, that I ask a, a lot of our guests. How would you impress your perspective on the perspective from the other side? So you know, judges who have been appointed from Bay Street, you know, sitting in the federal court, um, or Crown prosecutors, they haven't seen what you've seen. They don't struggle what you've struggled. What perspective do you think they're missing? from what you have to do? Well, what I have to do, or any criminal or refugee lawyer or anybody who's, uh, who's challenging the status quo is, I, I take this approach, and often, you know, you must have had this question put to you, you know, how can you defend these people? Right. Okay, look, everybody, every citizen has a right. One of those rights is to be represented by a lawyer in whatever dispute they have. So th- this is how I see things. And everybody has a right to a competent and vigorous representation. So... When I am successful in acquitting an innocent client, I'm maintaining, I'm helping to maintain, we all are as criminal lawyers, the integrity of the system. When I'm successful in acquitting somebody who's guilty, it's a kick in the ass to the police and crown to up their game and do a better job the next time of protecting society. Again, it's sharpening the tools of the system. The only time I'm bothered is, and we've all had them, is when you lose a case where the person's innocent, or you lose a case where the person's a real refugee and they go back and they get shot. That's bothersome, okay? And so, again, I take the same approach. I impress on on the judges that, hey, you're not anointed, you're appointed. You know, a lot of judges, it gets to their head, right? It's not something they want to hear often. And we're here to all do a job, right? I remember when I was successful in the Jabala case, and then they rehashed the same allegations on the security certificate, And I went through the new case and established after a week of cross-examination that there's nothing new. And I said to Justice McKay, listen, my robes are not a fashion statement. I have an oath. So I'm leaving here. I am not. There's a rule against perverting the course of justice and the rules. And I'm going to breach that by standing here pretending to be fighting. This is abusive. And he said, well, I have an oath too. I said, it's a different oath. You live with your oath. I'll live with mine. And I walked out. And so you got to remind them that we're all part of a system. When it works well, there has to be mutual respect. Don't personalize the job. A lot of crowns personalize it. A lot of defense counsels personalize it. You're not married to the job or your client or anything. We're all doing a job. It's an important job, but let's not egotistically get ahead of ourselves. Okay, final question. If you were able to run sort of one message, Stanley Cup final game, to... Let the Canadian, well, all of Canada know uh, something about their justice system. What message would you give to them if, if there was one thing <laughs> that everyone kind of needs to know? Okay. It's a bit hokey, but... Okay, number one, the justice system is not interested in dispensing justice. It's interested in dispensing of cases. Understand that. You as an individual in the justice system are not a person. You are a file. Grist for the mill. 
the composition of the judiciary and, historically, less so now, the bar, is not based on merit. If you think the brightest jurists are sitting up there on the bench, get rid of that delusion. Our judicial appointment system is based on racial, tribal, and political favor, not merit. And this is one of the reasons I took up Nadon in Mainville. It irked me to no end when the Harper was trying to stack the Supreme Court. And my primary purpose was to constitutionalize the court. I realized there would never be another opportunity. It was a perfect opportunity. And that's what, I'm, what I was saying earlier about thinking on your feet. You've got to be in the moment. I had a day to draft and file that challenge. And as they say, the rest is history for the good of the judiciary. It's constitutionalized now, the Supreme Court. So what I would say to most members of the public, but I don't have to say it anymore. I think they're figuring it out. And this is why you're getting a disjunct. And the judges in the bar and the profession can complain all they want. Look, if we don't fix it, nobody is going to have respect for the administration of justice. And as flawed as an idea as the rule of law is, it's our only chance as a species. And when it breaks down, we get World War I and World War II dictatorships, and the rest of it. The only thing that prevents us from that is that fine balance of the independence of the judiciary. Tribally and politically corrupt that, you're finished. And that's the road we're on, Sean. Mm -hmm. That's the road we're on. One more question, because now you've made me think of something else. Something that irks me as a lawyer is how much disconnect there is between the justice system and the understanding of everyday individuals. What we see, clients coming in, they have virtually no appreciation of what's about to happen. They have no idea what happens on their first court appearance. They have no idea what happens at a trial. They're basing everything off of Suits or some other TV show. So... Do you think there's, I mean, obviously this question is loaded, but please disagree with me if you, if you do, but do you think there's something to be said in increasing the transparency in the court system, whether it be by cameras in courts or at least some sort of dialogue that's happening so that people can understand what's happening? Oh, for sure. In the, in the Toronto 18 terrorism case, well, counsel were asking for a publication ban. I brought an application to bring cameras and radio microphones and broadcast the entire trial live. I'm a firm believer in broadcasting. Jeremy Bentham said it. The publicity is the only thing that keeps a judge honest. Bentham, of all people, said that. And I often quote him. He was, that quote, it's a bit more elaborate, was cited by the Supreme Court of Canada. The only thing that keeps judges honest is publicity. And there's a disconnect. And unfortunately, the disconnect is not only administrative and institutional. It's racial and socioeconomic. You see family court orders where they're ordering people to pay support way beyond their financial means. I mean, you know, it just like, doesn't everybody make 300000 a year as a judge? That kind of idea. I mean, that's what's at the back of some judges' minds. I don't know. There's a disconnect. And with self-represented people, which is now a problem, just think of it. You see it in the courts. The person who is the subject of the proceedings, all of a sudden, when they don't have a lawyer to act on their behalf becomes an inconvenience for the judiciary. Excuse me? Deal with it. Well, Rocco Galati, I really, really enjoyed our talk. Uh, thank you very much for being part of our podcast. Thank you. And I, uh, I should have forewarned you at the beginning, as I often do with long interviews, quoting Bob Dylan, don't ask me nothing about nothing. I might just tell you the truth. <laughs> Love it. Thank you.